my message today is not Pollyanna. I don't know if you know that, that when I was growing up, I grew up in Newcastle, as, as Egg kindly reminded me. And in Newcastle, we, were, we really were behind the curve. We used to have a movie house there called The Plaza. And The Plaza would get movies after they'd done the circuit in Durban, then Maritzburg, then Ladysmith, and then they finally come to us. And to give you an understanding of what used to happen, all the, all the good movies, the censors in this country back then liked cutting them off. So there was a movie called The Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was in Durban. So all of our, and in Maritzburg, and all, the, all of our friends who were at uh, boarding school came back and told us about this in Newcastle. But just before it got to Ladysmith, they banned it. And this was a lesson for me in, in later life. Not that I go and watch movies like Rocky Horror when they first come out, but it's to remind us that there are trends and that we in South Africa are very, very privileged. We don't think so, but we're privileged because if we get onto an aeroplane now and we go and have a look at what's going on in Silicon Valley in the United States, you'll probably find it's about three to four years ahead of when it's going to hit us. Then you look at the rest of the United States and you'll find it's probably about two years before it finally gets to us. You go to the UK, maybe 18 months and come to South Africa, as sure as God made little green apples, those trends come through to us. So that was my, little, that my Newcastle uh, um, statement. But I'm not here to talk, to talk to you about Newcastle, otherwise we'd be in Newcastle now. And I don't think that too many of us, including my wife, would like that. What I'm here to talk to you about today, and to share with you today, is what's going on in our country. Sometimes, I'm in the media business, uh, and sometimes it drives me mad what's happening in the media business. Because we have, as human beings, a propensity to be nine times more negative than positive. There's a guy called Daniel Kahneman who wrote an amazing book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he, as a Nobel Prize winner, did an analysis on this of human beings. And it's hardwired into our system. When our four, 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 four fathers were running around with saber tooth tigers and whatever else were around at that stage, they knew that a rustle in the weeds, in the reeds rather, was danger, was existential, i.e. something would jump out and eat them. So if there's a rustle in the weeds, they ran. They didn't know that there was maybe food, or they didn't care that there was food. And that's continued to this day. So what does that mean? That means that when you look at something, when you hear something, when you talk about something, nine times more often will you pay attention when it is negative. It's just the way we are made as human beings. Keep that in mind. Bear that in mind. Because when you have a look at the news flow that you're given, that news flow is generated or is, is produced to satisfy the audience who are going to go nine times more for negative than positive. So I know we here, most of us here in the room are entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs are very different. Probably only one-tenth of people on this planet are entrepreneurs. And I would like to challenge you on this as well. You hear about emigration. Massive emigration from South Africa. Next time you hear about someone emigrating, ask them what they do. We were talking before lunch about 
two types of people. You have what are called zoo animals and wild animals. Now most of the people in this room are wild animals. And what I mean by that is if you work for a corporation or you're employed or you're salaried, you get your food on time, you don't have you get your benefits when you retire, you don't have to worry too much about where the next meal is coming from because it is given to you. So you're pretty much a zoo animal. However, there's a cage around you. There are bars around you. And if you know anything about nature, if you take a zoo animal and you put them in the wild, chances are they aren't going to last very long. And then you get the entrepreneurs who are wild animals. They have great freedom. But by the same token, they also have a line hanging around which could take them out in a very short period of time. So if you look at things like this and ask the next person who's emigrating, what do they do? Nine times out of ten, you're going to find out that they are zoo animals. That they're in an environment where the world is changing and they're actually battling to come to terms with it. So they think, well, maybe if I go somewhere else in the world, it'll be easier. And that's not the truth, because the world is changing, the world is transforming. I spent three years in the UK. I did that because we had, in our business, or we had, a very significant exposure to hard currency. And when you live in a South Africa with turbulence, as an emerging market country would be, you better make sure that you can survive, first of all, and particularly when a big chunk of your business is hard currency. And we went there to set up a revenue stream. We've done it. I had the opportunity of staying there. Would I stay there? I'm not a zoo animal. I'm a bit of a wild animal as well. And the, the opportunities that one sees in South Africa as an entrepreneur, I don't really have to tell you about, but I'm going to. Because the news flow is coming at you from a very different direction. I'll just give you something else to ponder here. In the year 1889, a guy who was a farm boy who became a journalist called Charles Dow started a newspaper in the United States called the Wall Street Journal. It's the greatest newspaper on earth. It is our partner at Disney's. So if, you, if, you, if you're a member of our premium section on Disney's, you get the Wall Street Journal as part of the package. Anyway, this guy, Charles Dow, who started this publication, which we, his name lives on. You've heard of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in the uh, New York Stock Exchange. Charles Dow, in the year 1900, did some research. He died young, this guy, died at 51. But he did some research which holds true today. He looked at markets and he said he understands that markets work in ways, and I think all of us know this. If you've been around the rock a few times, you'll see that there are cycles. And he defined different cycles for every single market. He started off with the stock market, he took it then to other commodity markets, and those cycles work in six phases. And I want to just, just give you a little, a, a little insight into what they are and, and, and test this in your own mind. It begins with what is called the accumulation phase. That's where the smart money buys the property. That's where the smart money buys the shares. After the accumulation phase has ended, the second phase is when the not-so-smart money looks at the smart money coming in and starts jumping on the bus as well. And that's what we call the big move. And while the big move has gone up, 
that's phase two, comes phase three, which is excess. I've had the privilege of seeing two very, very big excessive situations in the stock market in South Africa. You might recall in 1987, I had a, a, a newsletter in 1987 called Capital Gains, but I, I worked for somebody else. Back then, people would pay a thousand rand for a weekly newsletter which gave them tips on what shares to buy in the stock market. You think it's anything more absurd? We had a phone line. The people would phone in in the morning and it was a recorded message to tell you what shares to buy that day. Extraordinary. But that was 1987. Then we had the huge crash, which some of you will remember. We had a similar thing happen again in 19, in, uh, a year from 87. Then we had it 10 years later, 97, exact replica. And we had another crash coming too. So that's what happens in the period of excess. You, once every man and his dog is in the market, it is certain that it's going to blow off. And when it blows off, you go to the next phase, which is distribution. So people then sell the shares. They hold on for a while. Eventually they see, well, they're not going to be able to hang in there. So they sell. And after distribution, you get the big move down. And eventually you get the bottom, which is despair. Now I'll ask you, <laughs> if you take South Africa, our country, and you look at our country's situation right now, you would have to believe that we're in phase six. We're in despair. Coming back from a, a, a little bit of distance gave me the opportunity to really talk to people with it from a different mindset. When I talk to zoo animals primarily, but mostly anybody who thinks they're really clever, they tell me the country is F-U-C-K-E-E. They tell me the country will never recover, that it is too far gone with the corruption, and that we're actually the stupidest family on earth to come back home. When I go and look at houses, we're trying to buy a house at the moment. Estate agents, who are the most bullish people, they have to be bullish, otherwise how can they sell houses? Estate agents are telling me I'm crazy. They're telling me that these people are emigrating. What are you doing back here? If you consider your own career and your own life and your own, your own journey that you had on this earth, nine times out of ten, you'll remember that the time of greatest opportunity the time when what Warren Buffett calls the fat pitch came when everybody else wasn't looking. A fat pitch, Warren Buffett is the greatest investor uh, uh, on earth. He owns a company called Berkshire Hathaway, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Started from scratch about 60 years ago. He's built it into the fifth biggest market cap company on earth. And he's done it through some very simple processes. Most of all, buying what everybody else is selling. And secondly, taking a huge swing when a thing called a fat pitch comes along. Now, a fat pitch comes from American baseball. When once in a blue moon, the professional baseballer throws the ball and he, he, he messes it up. I guess we could call it a lolly from a cricket parlour, where the guy who's really a good bowler but somehow comes out of the back of his hand and, or a, a slow full toss on the leg side. That kind of thing. That's a fat pitch. And what Buffett teaches us is that when a fat pitch arrives, 
you swing with all your might. Although he's the greatest investor of all time, he says there was times that he would spend more than 50, invest more than 50% of his portfolio on one bet because it was a fat fish. I'm going through it right now in my own, my own life, and I think you are too. But there's so much noise that you're not seeing it. Because if we all saw it, it wouldn't be a fat pitch. And let me just tell you a few things that are going on in this country. The first thing is that depending on the seniority of individuals, the decisions that you take have a time variance. So if you're a supermarket teller, or how you would say, and a client comes in, and that client is, is, is grumpy, and you deal with them, they will stay as a client. It's an immediate reaction. If you're the president of a country, and you make a decision, the impact of the decision you're making today will take years. So we're sitting in South Africa, having had the 10 most misgoverned years we could ever imagine. We had a bunch of crooks running the place, seriously. And if you don't believe me, go and read what's coming out in the various commissions of inquiry. But yet, we get rid of the one guy, the bad guys, bad kids have gone out the room. The new kids, the good kids have come in. And we expect things to change immediately. We can't. We've got to understand it. But by the same token, when the decisions that were being taken in the past administration impact us is years, three, four, maybe five years down the line. So we're not even two years into the new administration. But just like Newcastle used to get movies from Durban, just like South Africans can go to Silicon Valley and see what's coming down the road, if we open our eyes to the impact of decisions, we can see what the next movie is going to look like. And what have these decisions been? There's a thing called the National Development Plan, which was put together in 2012, which was put in the dust, in the dustbin pretty much. It's been dusted off, and it's now starting to come back into, into our, our uh, um, use in South Africa. The National Development Plan, without getting into all the details about it, is the most brutally honest assessment of this country's economy. I urge you to read it. You'll see that we know that education is a mess. We know where the problems are. And anybody who's been through a project or an addictive program will know you've got to kick rock bottom before you can start coming up again. The National Development Plan is part of this country's future. It's been readopted to it. We've got a national health insurance, which all you're going to read about that is negative news. It's going to cost us two percentage points more on VAT or whatever. Again, to go back to my hero Warren Buffett, he tells you the most valuable investment you can make is in yourself, and the second most valuable investment is helping the unleashing of human potential. And Rajiv, today I saw unleashing of human potential in your in your factory, and that made me very interested and very excited to see it. Because if you can unleash the human potential in this country, and we had a little taste of it since '94, just a taste of it. Can you imagine what kind of force you'll be letting through there? And we have now, we don't have a bunch of guards in office who are looking to better their own nests. We have a bunch of guards in office, in government, who have a higher purpose. 
If you want to know about that, if you want to want evidence, don't look at South African revenue services. When Robin Gordon from this part of the world was running it, he went in, he didn't know much about it, he was there for I think about a year or two years as a deputy, and then he took over and in ten years, the revenue services in this country was amongst the best in the world. The best in the world. Ranked highest. Had the smallest tax gap, had the best, most efficient revenue service. And then he was taken out, the crook was put in, and we know what happened after that. We're sitting with this huge hole. The changes that have been uh, in introduced at SARS must go into the back of your mind. Edward Kisweta was number, he was from his right hand while he was working there. Eskim. People look at Eskim and they say, what a disaster. What I would say to you is if you don't have electricity, you don't have an economy. And that is a realization that has happened now within those who are making the decisions about the, the, the rules in this country. Just imagine if Brian Mulefi was still running Esco. Load shedding would be a thing of the past. We would now just probably not have an electricity anymore, the way it was going, the plundering that was taking place there. So think about where we were, what, was, what has changed, and where we're going to. Because these things do take time, but the process is going through. You know, I, I, I listened to the State of the Nation address very carefully, because two years ago in Davos at the World Economic Forum, when uh, Cyril was still a deputy president, when it still wasn't sure, this was before, uh, the, the, this was in January 2017. This was before the watershed in this country, which was in December 2017. He made a speech. He made a talk on saying where, we were, where he would like to take the country to. And much of what he said then is still being consistently pushed through at the moment. Attacking corruption, fixing the state-owned enterprises, and having policy certainty. Here's a guy who actually understands how a modern economy is being run. Not a guy who says the whole rest of the world will fit into Africa. And by the way, Africa doesn't have a river that goes through the middle of it. It's called the Nile. It's pretty, pretty out and appropriate. But when I, listened, when I read the, the, uh, the State of the Nation address in June by our president, you live in a tourism city here. I bet you not one of you read the detail that said one of the priorities of this government is to double tourism by 2030. I guess none of you have heard that there is a plan to make the country visa-free for as many countries as possible. Recent, uh, just last, last month, uh, Saudi Arabia, New Zealand, Qatar, and a whole bunch of other countries were taken off the visa list. Up until this point in time, if you were a New Zealander, if you wanted to come to South Africa, you had to go to Auckland, stand in a queue, get your visa, pay $10,000 or whatever it was, and then finally come to this country. So, these are plans where the actions are being implemented. We have an investment conference. Last year, the investment conference pledged 300 billion rand in, in long-term investment in South Africa. 300 billion rand. That's, these are big numbers. I was wondering what had happened to that until I read through the President's speech in June and he said 250 of that is already in the planning or implementation stages. So 
So it's in the early stages. You see my story of this fat pitch? It's there, but we forget about it. We've got another investment conference, by the way, between the 5th and the 7th of November, where you can probably expect a similar kind of a, an uptick. But the thing I really wanted to, to uh, talk to you about before we open up for, for a bit of questions is a thing called the Public-Private Growth Initiative. As entrepreneurs, as people from the private sector, you'll appreciate it. There's a guy uh, from Toyota, he was head of Toyota South Africa called Johansson Sale. He was promoted within Toyota, he's now the head of Toyota Europe. So it's probably the second biggest job in Toyota worldwide, for South Africa. And he then heard Ramaphosa's speech in 2018. And he said, this is all very well, all these ideas and hopes, but you've got to put something practical together. So he brought the Japanese plan, post-World War II, into this country. And that is what we now have as the public-private growth initiative, but it's all under the radar. I know a lot of you like to operate under the radar, but as far as government is concerned, there's a lot of under-the-radar operations going on there as well. But they do, from time to time, disclose what's going on. And the latest numbers is that, by the way, there are 19 sectors of the economy, and I've spoken to my, my former neighbor in Johannesburg, who's a guy called Nick Binader, who is the dean of the, of the uh, of Gifts, which is our leading business school. And Nick, together with Rolf Mayer, are the two facilitators of this whole process. And I'm quite close to Nick, and he tells me what's happening here, and how minds are changing on both sides of the spectrum. Private, private sector looks at government and says, these are a bunch of pelucas, they don't know what they're doing, they just sit there drinking tea all day and, and, and shuffling papers. Government looks at the private sector and says, they're just looking at, at how they can make the most amount of money in the shortest possible time. Of course, neither of those caricatures are correct. We're somewhere in between, and the fact that we're all living in South Africa and we have children and grandchildren here means that we want better for the country when it comes down to it. At the, at the absolute core. So in the public-private growth initiative, 19 sectors have got their chief executives of the major companies together with the directors general and the top people in their companies, in their uh, departments, engaging on a regular basis. Out of this has come commitments from the private sector of investments of 850 billion rand. Now I think the billion just you know, rolls off the tongue. But to give you an idea of that, that's about 75% of the annual budget which is going to be invested. And you know what happens when you invest money, you buy a new piece of plant and equipment. It leverages forward, it has a multiplier effect. In 43 projects, these are happening, they're going on at the moment, but they're under the radar and they aren't being looked at in the public press. Why? Why is the media not telling us about the, the good news. Well, nine to one as a starting point. If you've got a transforming sector and you're under pressure, you're going to go for the easiest money. So feed the bad news. There's also a very disturbing thing that's happening in our country as well, where much of the media is heavily incentivized to continue giving us the negative story. Whether it's because they are funded by philanthropists. Philanthropists don't fund things when it's normal. They only fund things when there's a problem. 
of course. Whether it's they're trying to grow the, the, the impact of the owner um, or the, the, the profile of the owner. And I'm hoping that we'll start seeing a change in this as well and we'll start seeing a change in the narrative. Because the narrative of this country, when you travel and see what's happening elsewhere in the world, is that we do have an extraordinary opportunity, incredible potential. We know that. We've always known that. But what we've talked ourselves into is that, A, we're not as good as people elsewhere in the world, so we lack confidence. I've seen South Africans do amazing things in London. Major organizations run by South Africans. The South Africans who do go there, who do emigrate there, all those zoo animals, they seem to do very well in the zoos on that side of the world as well. And that's the reality of what we are. We've also been pushed together, forced together. BEE gets a really bad rep, and in many cases for the good reason. But do you get people from different tribes, different backgrounds, different cultures working together naturally? Or when they are incentivized to do it? I see amazing things happening in this country. And I'm really, really happy to be home. And I'm privileged, Rajiv, to be part of your 50th celebration. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have seven, seven minutes left for questions, if there are any. I'd be happy to take the most difficult, challenging questions you can try. What impact do you see Brexit having on our economy? The question is, what impact do you see Brexit having on our economy? Um, okay, I'm going to start off with what Warren Buffett would say. He would, he would say that... We never look at the big trends because there are too many opportunities uh, in, in the real world. So to, to call the big trends is extraordinarily difficult. Our economy has a much bigger impact from China. We are favored nation status for the Chinese. <coughs> Chinese investment coming into South Africa, why has it not? No one, remember we were, we were invited into BRICS by the Chinese. And for some reason, we, we forgot about it. The money started coming and then it stopped. It's because President Xi is on an anti-corruption drive of note. Of course, the difference in China is if you corrupt, you just disappear. In South Africa, it takes you a while to get the orange oval. But you live in a city where your mayor has just been kicked out. Now, have you ever wanted evidence that things are starting to move in the right direction. As far as Brexit's concerned, Britain's a small economy as far as we are. You know, they're a big trading partner, relatively speaking. They know a lot of things on their plate. They've got, <laughs> they've got challenges that we don't even know we have to look at. Like, imagine, you've got an aging population, but you've got national health insurance, so who's going to pay for it? So as people get older, they retire, and then they want the national health. But there aren't young people coming in who are actually keeping the, the tax base going. They've got big challenges there. We've got the opposite from a demographic perspective. Brexit, maybe it's going to make it easier for, for, for highly skilled South Africans to enter the UK. That's probably the bigger thing. But if they do, they do. And we've got to believe that. We've just got to have confidence in our own ability to be able to deliver 
and to grow the next group of entrepreneurs, which is what you guys are up to. Yeah. The, the question was in, in 1959, 1960, Lee Wei Yu in uh, Singapore uh, came through a similar kind of situation where he had three words which you're going to have to help you with it. So the, the one was meritocracy, pragmatism, and honesty. Honesty, pragmatism, yeah, I, I don't remember that for that. <laughs> How far are we away from that? We're on, we're on, the, we're on the path. We are on the path. We have commissions of inquiry set up by the ruling party, unprecedented, showing all the dirty laundry. This is what our people have done. This is what the people who are in our party, in our liberation movement, have done. Let's expose them and put them in jail. Unprecedented for South Africa, not unprecedented globally. And the, the message we can take here is from Brazil. Brazil have a thing called Operation Car Wash. In Brazil, one of the richest uh, people, or ex uh, executives, he ran the biggest, he owned the biggest construction company in South America, is now serving a 16-year jail sentence for corruption. If you take the United States as an example of, there are about 35 people in jail now in Brazil, but if you take the United States as an example, it's like the head of the Senate and the head of the House of Representatives both in jail. But it gets better. The most popular president of modern times, Lula da Silva, is serving a 12-year jail sentence in Brazil today. So, it shows it can be done, and in South Africa, it's in the process of being done. But let's not forget, it took the Brazilians three years of investigations before they had their first conviction. These things don't happen overnight. We know those of us who've had the misfortune of having to deal with lawyers, apart from their costs, they also take a little while. So the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind finely. I would not like to put money on many of the South African equivalent of the Brazilians staying out of jail again. It's coming. And that, I think, brings me back to the point in the cycle where we are now. We're in a cycle where it's time for accumulation. This is the time to be bold when others are wimpish. This is the time to where you're considering that investment to go ahead and do it. This is the time to remember that everything works in a cycle. If you look at where a country is, it's like a balance sheet, it's at a point in time, which direction is the trend? Up until December 20, 2017, the direction was clear. We were going towards our brethren to the north of us. There is now no doubt that with the plundering that was happening here in this country, we would have been on our route to Zimbabwe. And my goodness, if any of you have visited Zim lately, you'll see what an absolute disaster that place is. But again, within, 
They've had decisions that were taken a year, 18 months ago, and the population is expecting things to happen overnight. Of course it doesn't. You go through a more difficult time first before you come out of the problem. South Africa is going through that too. But the time to invest is not when everybody else is investing, not when the news is known by the whole world. The time to invest is when the fact picture is delivered to you. That's my thesis. I'm <laughs> very much in the minority at the moment, but I hope that there are a few of you who would at least start thinking a little differently when you get the popular narrative that comes to you. Thanks, it's been a privilege to be here. Thank you.